All right. Well, hello there. Welcome to the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Uh, in case you're new to this podcast, we're a group of people that just refuse to walk home alone at night. I, I just want to start this podcast by making that clear. Some of us live in Chicago, some in LA. It's just like instant death for us, right? The vampires out here, shoot, they shoot bullets, unless you're Jim, in which case it's like the cows walk home alone at night and arrive safely. So that's, that's where Jim lives. Um, another reason we don't walk home alone at night is uh, we've seen one too many horror films. In fact, that's what this podcast is about. Horror films. We take well-made, typically recent horror films, bite down on them and suck out that sweet, sweet intellectual juice like Hannibal to his Chianti. <laughs> we analyze horror films. We talk about why they're scary. We muse about their cinematic and cultural value. I'm like really hyped tonight in case you can't tell. Something about like a girl walking home alone at night, Hannibal. I'm already, I'm already amped. Uh, and tonight's movie is the 2014 film, which just so happens to be A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Uh, written and directed by Anna Lily Amarpour and starring Sheila Vand, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night is essentially about a vampire with no name. In fact, she's just referred to as The Girl. And now The Girl lives in an Iranian ghost town known as Bad City, a place that reeks of lawlessness, lawlessness death, and loneliness. And the townspeople are unaware that they are essentially being stalked by this lonesome vampire, one that acts as a sort of vigilante, choosing to feed from those who she considers to be uh, bad, which are most notably dudes, right? This is not an MRA-friendly film. I'm just going to throw that out there, right? Trigger warning for the MRAs out there. Um, so one evening, the girl runs into Arash, a lonely James Dean vibing teenager uh, who has a drug addicted father who's basically trying to do the best he can to make a living working as a gardener for a really rich family. And so after this happenstance meeting with Arash, the girl starts to get a glimmer of what love may be like even in a city of chaos and loneliness. So this movie has been dubbed as the first Iranian vampire Western. Um, it's shot entirely in Farsi although it was uh, filmed locally here in California, I believe Bakersfield. Um, I think like the only truly Iranian horror film I've seen and it was fantastic is Under the Shadow, which uh, is currently on Netflix. Highly recommend that movie. So like to me, this was a kind of a weird thing. There was a bit of a marketing issue here, I think with the girl walks home alone at night. Like, I don't know if we should consider this like, an Iranian horror film. Maybe we'll get into that. I, I don't know. I felt like I was a little betrayed when I felt like it was when I found out it was filmed here in California. I thought, was it really like a first Iranian vampire western? I don't know. Well, maybe we'll get into that. Um, so this movie for me was a bit of a challenge. It was a challenge in the sense that I was so focused on where the story was taking me that I initially missed a lot of the cinema style, a lot of the craft that makes this movie interesting and unique. I was so focused on questions like, where did the girl come from? You know, what's the vampire's backstory? Like it was difficult for me to be in the moment for a large part of this movie. And this is one of those films that sort of requires you to be in the moment, right? Like to forego the sort of trappings of traditional monster movies, especially vampire movies where the story of the monster's transfiguration and their backstory is so often emphasized. So I watched this movie a second time. In fact, I actually watched it a third. I watched it today for a third time because um, I knew I was missing something. I, I started to just dig it. Every time I started watching it more and more, there was something about it. And I realized, here's what I realized. I realized that this is a way more artsy movie than I initially thought, like for better or for worse. And we'll probably get into that tonight. But at a certain point, I, I started to see that like 
motivations, intentions, backstories, rules, lore, like all of that is sort of thrown out the window in this movie. Like if you're looking at the movie through that lens, you're missing the point, I think, in a film like this. Um, I personally didn't see this movie as having a lot of narrative depth. Like the story isn't particularly complex or really even novel. I mean, it feels even generic a bit at times, but what it lacks in narrative depth, uh, depth it makes up for with style. Like this is a gorgeous movie. Every single shot of this movie is gorgeous. And at a certain point, you know, it, I started to just care less and less about where the story was taking me and more about the feelings being evoked by the girl and Arash, by the desolate setting, by the shadows, by the lighting, and of course, by the trans person dancing with the balloon. I, I have said it before and I'll say it again, you can't make a vampire movie without a trans person dancing with a balloon. It's science. Like you have to have that in every vampire film. You just have to. Uh, and this movie showed that. So like at a certain point, a girl walks home alone at night um, impressed upon me, like looks and movement and mood started to impress itself upon me more than plot development. And there's a sense in which this movie privileges, I think, imagery over story. And I usually hate that. I, I, you, I really hate that sort of thing. In fact, this may be one of the only movies that I'm aware of where the style, the mood, the ambiance, the looks, the lighting, the sound, like all of those things sort of overtake the plot and I still ended up enjoying the movie, right? Like a good film for me to contrast this with is Dario Argento's 1977 Suspiria, which we did a few weeks ago, a film I absolutely hated for some of the same reasons I'm lauding this film for, like mood, ambience, lighting. So this movie was kind of an odd experience for me. Um, it had all the makings of a horror film I'm probably not going to enjoy, but I enjoyed it. Um, and I'm not entirely sure why. I'm maybe hoping our conversation tonight will elucidate why a movie with so little plot development still feels superior to other horror movies in the vampire genre. Just a very strange experience for me. So with that said, uh, I'm going to open it up to the floor. I'm curious to know what everyone thought of this movie, but more specifically, let's open it with like, like, do you agree with me that this movie privilege style over story and am, am i the i mean i can't be the only one who sees that i just want to start there and see if you guys felt the same way you're not alone noah you're not the only <laughs> one who sees that <laughs> uh yeah this is i you know for a while uh i was trying to follow the story i i had probably literally the same experience that you did as i was watching this film um i wasn't necessarily concerned about vampire backstory that's not not all that doesn't interest me all that much. Um, but it was certain in the filmmaking that uh, I was going to call the director, give me, uh, Anna Lily Amirpour. Uh, she's like the trope master general. Uh, she was using all of these Western tropes, all of the, the, I mean, she's watched every Jim Jarmusch movie. I am sure of it. Even if she tells me that she hasn't, she has watched every Jim Jarmusch movie of all, uh, that he's ever made. So it's, it feels like she's cribbing from other directors, other styles, and kind of putting it in this sort of mishmash of a relatively slowly plotted artistic film that is um, highlighting tropes and individual images um, rather than character development and story. And, uh, you know, I'm like you, I need, I like a good story. 
Um, that said, I was still able to enjoy parts of this film that I thought were really compelling and really interesting. Um, not the least of which was just the wordplay in the title. Um, a girl walks home alone at night sort of gives me this, this point of view that, oh no, she might be the victim of a particular situation. Like she might be, this is a, an expression of vulnerability, but rather it's actually quite um, insidious or, or, or scary that she is walking home alone at night because she'll fucking bite your finger off and kill you. Um, those are the, so I, I, there's a lot about this film that I ended up attaching myself to and liking, even though I totally agree with you that there's uh, not a lot of emphasis on character development. Um, it's almost going to be hard to talk about this movie because I think that this is one of those films that we, you know, it's almost better to just so, show screenshots and say, look at how good this shot is. I know. <laughs> yeah. Right? And yeah. That's it. Yeah. You know, I, I think I'm definitely going to have to agree with that too. It's it's not really going to be focusing so much on the on the story. Instead, um, as you've sort of alluded to already, like understanding the director is really the key to understanding this film. Um, there's quite a bit here that's sort of thrown together, but it, it all comes down to the things that I think that uh, Amarpour she she sort of loves about music and about movies and about um, kind of her own sort of cultural context as a person. So, and I, I think this really sort of goes back into the question that we had too is whether or not this is an Iranian film. And I would argue, in fact, that it is not um, an Iranian film. Um, and that's primarily because while she does have that sort of influence um, because she's uh, Iranian born, but I think she was it, mostly through like her family. I think she was actually born maybe in the UK, but primarily grew up in California. And so you have that sort of clash there of, you know, this sort of like this Eastern um, Middle Eastern sort of sort of uh, meshed with the stereotypical sort of vision of the West and sort of those two things come together and kind of what you see in a girl walks home alone at night. And that's absolutely paramount to understanding the girl's character as well, because while you have this, um, this head covering and in the apartment on her bookshelf, I think there is in fact a copy of the Quran, but she herself says that she's not religious. She is obsessed with sort of like this mid eighties kind of like pop culture and all the hits and you know, this sort of like very almost like stereotypically DJ type persona. Um, these sort of almost contrasting things coming together in a flash that makes perfect sense and perfect harmony. Um, that's really what this film is about. I think is like the, is the emphasis of different sort of, contrasting elements coming together in a harmony um which also i think uh probably is is the the perfect reason to explain why she decided to shoot this in black and white right i mean it's everything about this i think there are so many layers to 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 support kind of this this contrast motif um and it, i don't know like that's I, <laughs> I i'm emoting right now because it's hard to pull up words i think that really explain how much i really enjoyed this because primarily of the imagery and why um, why it's not really a story-based movie. It really is just about kind of like those those emotions and those different sort of cultures being slammed together in that really interesting sort of song that uh, can only be produced by two things that you don't think should go together, but end up coming together quite perfectly. Yeah, it's about her. This yeah. is an extension of her, the director, 100%. And yeah. And that's, go ahead, Kira. That's why I'm going to argue it is an Iranian film. Um, it is really, really hard. I have a cousin who's half Filipino, half white. She grew up here in America. Her, 
her mom's Filipino. She's gone to the Philippines. Um, she tried really hard to embrace cultures on both sides. She felt this huge clash. It's really, really hard when you're trying to figure out who you are. And I also have a friend whose parents came, you know, to America. She was born in America, um, but she still feels very attached to the culture her parents are from. She goes to visit family there and all that. Um, it's really hard being an American and coming here first generation or having at least half first generation uh, going on in your in your gene pool. It's it's what is your identity? You're going to be hated on because you're a person of color and because you're Iranian, but you're also going to get hated on from Iranians because you're too white. And so you just have this constant barrage of of where what's your identity? What do you identify as? Um, and I think she put that perfect mix of herself in there. It is Iranian, but I also think it's American. I think it's Iranian American. And I think it's beautiful in that, that she is able to represent herself that way. Um, the actual costume that the actress is wearing in it is a gift from the filmmaker's grandma. That was a legit article of clothing sent from her own grandmother. And she was like, this will be creepy. <laughs> and so she added that into her own film. It is definitely pieces of her culture and of her you know, background. And it, in a way, that's what makes it really American, right? Because we're just such a melting pot of people, or maybe it's a salad at this point, because, <laughs> you know, the way people try to separate, segregate, but um, it, I don't know, I think that's what makes America kind of really awesome. And when you see a woman filmmaker coming out and representing all elements of her culture, of her life being brought up here in America that, you know, she has Madonna and Michael Jackson and Bee Gees posters, but like with superimposed faces. So they don't have to ask for permission, which was hilarious. Um, but like showing the Western American side of things, uh, it, it's, it's such a beautiful like story of what makes this country really cool. Um, but also one of the things she thought that was really funny, she was like, Oh, I don't know if people from Iran will be able to, you know, relate to some of the stuff in this. And then she went there and they seem to know all the lyrics to Eminem songs and <laughs> quote all these like, you know, back to the future is huge there. And she, and she was in an interview and she was like, I can't wait till, you know, this becomes a bootleg and, and people are like selling it there in the streets and then everybody can see my movie. You know, <laughs> she was like super excited for when they'll be able to see the film. So um, I think she really has embraced both sides of it. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I guess that's why I kind of, I, I will go with it's Iranian. Yeah. I mean, well, embracing both sides of it does kind of lend credence to the idea that it's American, especially if you're going to talk about America as a hybrid nation, you know, a nation that's able to sort of influence other cultures. But I do agree with the general thesis that it's Iranian because I think that's where it's satirical barbs are. Um, I talked about the, the double meaning of the title and how the title in, um, suggests a certain degree of vulnerability, but it also suggests like the costume itself um, is this, uh, this costume that some people either in Iran or uh, looking at Iran from the outside would consider that costume to be a symbol of oppression against women. Of course, there are women within uh, some societies who don't consider it a symbol of an, uh, oppression, 
um, and you know their their points have validity as well. But uh, nevertheless, like she takes this costume and she refigures it rather as rather than a symbol of oppression, but as something menacing against the male pa patriarchy within the. Iranian society that uh, that she's setting her film. So for that reason, I think that it's. Um, it, I would agree with the the assessment that it is more Iranian than it is um, American. Well, the, 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 wait. It, I just want to say one more thing. Oh, the sorry. other the other aspect I want to layer onto what you just said. Uh, so yeah, it's it's definitely got some American vibes, but in a way, uh, and hear me out on this. She's a huge fan of Western films uh, and even spaghetti Western films <laughs> specifically. Uh, she's obviously a, a a fan of the, what is it called? Once Upon a Time in the West. I could definitely feel those vibes coming Sergio up. Sergio Leone. Leone. Um, but the thing is, is it almost feels like a film where someone's pretending to be American um, and like taking our pop culture elements and like, this is how they perceive all of the things and all the vibes, like the pulpiness. There's there's a little bit of Quentin Tarantino. There's a little bit of the Western. There's a little bit, there's all these like pop culture references everywhere. It almost feels like an Iranian film that like was putting in some Western vibes to like, I, I don't know. It, Sorry, that's. I just wanted to add that one extra. It's certainly, layer. it's certainly a hybrid, and there's there's a lot going on there. But I think, well, my only argument against, you know, this sort of started when Ben said I think it's more an American film than an Iranian film, and I kind of wanted to reply to that in the sense that I I think that its target is Iran, whether or not it is uh, it, its its form. I think is a hybrid of numerous cinemas including world cinema like the spaghetti westerns and uh you know which which have some some italian base then and on and on and on so it, it's a weird kind of mix of these movies and i guess you could probably get me by the end of this podcast to call it an american film because there's such a hybridization of different film styles <laughs> but uh, i think it's central like the target it's aiming at is iranian culture i think See, I, I have to, I think I think I want to disagree with that. I don't think it's targeted at Iranian culture. Um, and Shara, it, it seems clear like you, you've probably seen this too. It sounds like you watched a lot of the same interviews that I did, but I'm pretty sure that she came out and said herself in one of these discussions that she doesn't consider it that she doesn't consider it an Iranian film. Now, I know that the the creator um, creates a work of art and puts it out in the world and then it becomes sort of a work of its own um, people view the film and they interpret it as a person who watches it and it can mean something maybe different than it was originally intended but i definitely don't think that the director herself considers it that um, and so like, that's where I'm sort of like draw, uh, drawing my, my perspective on that from um, and that's kind of why I think that that element of culture yes it is based in kind of like this this sort of random uh, undefined iranian ghost town named bad city um and there are elements of that culture you see there um i i think that's just sort of like one element that sort of gets added to that because that's one element of her um and that's just sort of blended in with uh the rest of sort of like the colors that are used in the palette they're used to create this movie. Um, I really don't think it would necessarily be correct to say that it is targeted at a particular culture. It just seems like something that she created more because like these are all the things that she loves and would love to see in a movie. So here's the thing that I'm going to create. 
Um, anyway. Yeah, it's, I think it's I think it's part of who she is. It, it, I don't think it's yeah. I don't I don't know if it's one of the. I I don't know also if it's targeted at Iranian culture either. Um, but she I, actually did say that it was a little but, bit. But she also said this is not. But it, she, she said she, it was like kind of everything. And honestly, like let's be honest. Her target isn't a particular culture. It's a particular gender. <laughs> well, but see, that's the thing, right? What I was going to say is she also said explicitly, this is not a feminist movie, which I'm sorry. Like, this is where it goes back to what Ben is saying, death of the author. You know, like, I'm, you're wrong. I, this, I, one of my favorite uh, interviews I ever saw was Mark Kermode interviewing uh, Big Dick William Defoe Big Dick, uh, for uh, Antichrist. And they got into, they got into it about, you know, Kermode said, this is what the movie's about. And um, William Defoe said, no, that's not what the movie's about. Here's what it's about. And Kermode said, Mark Kermode said, you acted in the film, I watched it, right? Like, it's one of those things where like, it's so, we'll, let, there's definitely a feminist bend to this. Like, my God, we'll get into the reasons for that. But I actually no. wanna, I actually wanna hijack the most important thing that I think we skipped over. And it was one of Ben's points about the contrast in this movie. The, the key to this movie is how the director sees herself, 100%, right? There's a contrast all over this movie, down to the anamorphic black and white. Like, maybe to paint the idea that the world is so often void of complex nuance, a world with no real color, that a film that is about an Iranian who's born in the UK, who comes to California, goes to UCLA... There's all of these hot, there's a hodgepodge, a mixture of culture and art and cinema. There's a background noise to her life that you see all throughout this movie, right? A background noise, by the way, in the film, that's very David Lynch, I might add, uh, which I guess we can get into in a little bit. But but I wanna hijack Ben's point because I think that's like one of the most important things. So, and, and, and this goes back even to Jim, right? A girl walks home alone at night. So it reverses that trope of, you know, the woman's gonna get hurt because a man's gonna come kill her or something, rape her or kill her, right? So, you know, the girl, the vampire seems, when you look at her in the movie, she appears simple and meek, but she's a very complex person who loves Lionel Richie and skateboards. And she's a predator, right? So simple and meek, she's actually complex and predatory. Um, you know, she's a villain because she kills people, but she's also removing harm by killing bad people. Right, so she's a cold blood, a cold blooded killer in one sense, but she's also the object of romance and affection through a rash. It's dangerous for a girl to walk home alone at night, but not really, right? So there's these reversals, um, almost like confronting one's own prejudices. Something like that is in here, right? Um, the film's not really about one thing. Maybe there's something. There's a point dancing around this movie, like trying to box something into particular labels and things not appearing as they seem. Uh, and I think that's a large theme throughout the entirety of this movie. Yeah, when you talk about how it's, uh, she says that it's not a feminist film, uh, hilarious. Um, she literally has the character go up to a little boy and threaten him that she's going to fucking kill him if he, she's gonna be watching him for the rest of his days. And if she ever sees him harm somebody, she's going to fucking kill him. And you know what she's hinting at because you know who she's been a predator towards the whole time. Uh, she's going after sexual predators and guys that uh, treat women like shit and treat them like, uh, it, for lack of better words, cum buckets. Um, or as uh, was put on the pimp's side of his head, uh, a puss pussy puller or pussy like, like it basically means he's... Stretcher. 
stretching pussy, which it, it, I mean, just having that put on his head, it's really obvious the types of guys she's, you know, having this vampirus uh, go after. It's, it, I, I think it's funny that she would try to say that. Well, look, but. look, 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 it's a, it's a movie about a female vampire who hunts men, right? It's a, it's a movie where a female vampire reverses the predatory nature of walking home alone at night. A woman preys on a man, not a man preying on a woman. It's a movie where a female character uses her sexuality to lure men because of their desire. Uh, right? It's a movie where a female vampire bites off a man's finger, which itself has certain connotations, and then paints like lipstick on his mouth when she's done. It takes place in Iran, which is a patriarchal society, like Jim said. She wears a Shador, right? Um, it, it, this movie passes the Bechdel test. Um, has two women talking about things other than dudes. Um, the girl, I mean, you keep going on and on. The girl executes Saeed and Hassan, both of whom not only were um, treating women like cum buckets, but almost as important, they were mean to cats. They were mean to cats. And the cat is a, a feminine feline sort of trope. So anyway, there's, this is definitely a feminist film. I'm sorry. Pointing 100%. out too that there's, no, 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 there's no doubt. Yeah. No, pointing out too that the cat was supposed to be a placeholder for the mother of Arash. And, right? There you go. Uh, just there throwing you go. that out there. However, however, I would say that um, against this, um, just to throw uh, kind of like a, a defensive, maybe Emmer Poor's position on that is that, by and large, what the movie is really supposed to be about, not necessarily in her intentions about feminism, but about transcending boundaries. And so the way that we see this movie as being feminist because of all these things we're listing, I think is really just an artifact of the fact that we had a director and a writer who were the same person and happened to be female who were completely in charge of the way this movie was made. And so it's made from a female perspective as opposed to what we're used to. And so in the female perspective, like, do you think women are just always sitting around talking about men? No, I mean, that's kind of ridiculous, right? We all we all talk about relationships. We all talk about the people we're, we're romantically interested in, whatever. But it also makes perfect sense that two women would sit down and talk about something a little more deep, like their experience of the world, their emotions, the troubles they're going through, their difficulties in life. Um, and so is that inherently necessarily feminist in that it's fighting for this particular viewpoint and type of like equality. Uh, I mean, like it, it, it might fall under the umbrella if you look at the definition of feminist and, and that it's supposed to mean equality, but it also just seems like a person giving their perspective and that perspective happens to be a woman's perspective. Like really, I think it's, it's no more complicated than that. Um, that yeah. is actually the most <laughs> hopeful thing I've ever heard in my life because that would literally mean that all we need is more female filmmakers and all this bullshit will just fucking go away and we can stop having these 80s giant male man boob guys going, bah, 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 bah. look at all the beautiful women on me. I don't know why I went Arnold, bad Arnold, but. No, keep going. That was. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah uh, if you're going to pick a trope of 80s masculinity, that's not a bad one to pick. Like... <laughs> but like that, that is a very hopeful stance, Ben. And, and honestly, I hope you're right. I hope that it isn't feminist. I hope it's just the thing that'll happen when more women are given chances to be creative and honestly with technology today there's a ton more women getting into cinematography because they have these special harnesses that make it to where you don't have to have these big giant like things anymore you could just literally have this harness and balance your camera out and so you're going to get a lot more not only female perspective in writing and directing and all that stuff because doors are being opened but because 
literally technically we can have a woman's eye filming it. And so uh, I, I think that'll be really great if this just isn't an issue anymore and not something I, I would love for 10 years from now to watch this and be like, <laughs> I thought that was feminist. That's just normal. And I was looking from the perspective of shitty 80s movies. So, yay. Hey, or so I Oh, go ahead, Jim. Let me go real. It's real quick. Uh, in that sense, then we could probably characterize this as a post-feminist film, uh, a film that takes the lessons of of feminism as already the fights and battles of feminism as already won, and proceeds there. I don't necessarily think that I can. I think I still think that there's a lot in this movie that is fighting those old those old wars. Um, which which have not been won yet, especially in a country like Iran. Um, but uh, nevertheless, if that's if if we're going to take Ben's perspective as this being not a feminist movie, I would then characterize it as a post-feminist movie, one that sort of exists after the after the wars are over, so to speak. Uh, go ahead, Noah. I was just going to say really quickly, I have a, I have a wrench I'm going to throw in this whole conversation and I want to, I want to preface it by asking a question. I want you to, I want all three of you to answer quickly. Who in your mind immediately comes to mind when I say the most misogynistic director in Hollywood, who's the first person that comes to your mind? Not that you think, but that is just considered, you think overall, like by people or maybe by you. The first person that popped in my head was Michael Bay. Okay. And then... I, I mean, I've got others, but I'll, okay. I'll just, the first, you wanted the instinctual answer, it was Michael Bay. My, Michael Bay. Ben, who do you say? I don't know enough about directors to actually make that call. I'm ashamed okay. to say. I'm ashamed to say. Okay, your vote goes to Michael Bay. We got two Michael okay. Bays. <laughs> Michael Bay. Uh, Shayra, go. Every director. <laughs> like every director no i i don't want to be that far-fetched and that crazy but yeah that might be a little it, unfair it's it's just i'm having a hard time thinking of one that's not and and honestly when i think of ones that are not i think of quentin tarantino which is like the last one most people think of as of as of recent all right so but wait, i think wait, he has let's go with hugely that. feminist stuff that, that, okay so let's go with that that's important so uh Amarpour has stated that this didn't go the way I wanted to at all. Uh, uh, Amarpour stated that the, the uh, who do you, okay, like I'm totally blowing this entire segment. Who do you think Amarpour thinks the biggest feminist in all of Hollywood is? She She's quoted as saying this one director. Biggest is the most, feminist? Biggest feminist. Biggest misogynist. No, no, feminist, not misogynist. Feminist. feminist. I think she, she's so in love with David Lynch that she would say David Lynch is the biggest feminist. Lars von Trier. She said what? that Lars von Trier is the biggest feminist in the film industry. That's what she said. Can I just reinforce my love of Anna Lily? I mean, really, really. Yeah. So, I so thought you I'd were expecting. I, now I get what you were yeah. saying. Yeah. You I, were yeah. expecting me to say or Ben to say the biggest misogynist working in film today is Lars von Trier. I was trying to trap you, and you did well. You did well. well. I mean. <laughs> I've seen a Michael Bay film. I'm kind of <laughs> mad at Michael Bay now, actually. Now that you said, I'm kind of yeah. But yeah. I, I, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta say, I kind of agree with her because Coming Blood. That's pretty. Oof, that was yeah, a that, tough yeah, that's thing. yeah, that's never left me. That's never I tough. That, yeah, yeah, that's never. I can't. I still see it in my. I see Terrifier, the clown from Terrifier in my dreams, and Coming Blood. Those are the two things that have never left me. From Antichrist, yeah, I. 
I don't know. I mean, maybe she and Bjork could have a conversation about <laughs> that. Let's. Uh, uh, it's, uh, well, look, 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 look. Okay, here. Maybe. I'm gonna, go ahead. I, I let me let me read. Let me. I actually have the direct quote here from Amarpour about uh, the the feminist label that's being put on this movie because she was interviewed a bunch and a lot of people were like, "Hey, it's a feminist film," you know, and they wanted to ask questions about that. So here's her quote. She said, that probably says more about you than it does me. A film is like a mirror. What I connect with in a movie is my own stuff. There you go. It's what we've been saying this whole time. So consciously, no, it's more about how surfaces are not what they seem. There's more to people than what meets the eye. It's not just women. It's everybody. Everybody in the world uh, in the film, in my mind, is much more than what you see on the surface. All people underneath have strange, weird secrets inside of them. And when you get to see those things, it makes you reevaluate the outside and reevaluate your assumptions. What I'm interested in is not an ism. All of those things confine your thinking because they tell you this is what it is and then it's done. I think everything has just to be considered in its own individual space and time. So she says that, but here's my counter to that, right? Horror and feminism are inexorably linked through the vehicle of violence, like violence lends itself to an immediate distinction of predator and prey, right? Like to the one in power and the one being subjugated. Those are, you know, there's people that are stronger inflicting violence on those that are weaker uh, immediately when we think of violence. And so there's always a social component to violence. And in this movie, you know, this is a movie where a woman kills, I believe, only men and only men that fit a particular criteria, so the criteria that we went over earlier. So Except for the homeless guy. Was there something that happened there? Um, yeah, that's interesting, right? He really doesn't do anything that's bad, right? That right. we know of. But yeah. that that part, uh, I, I was like, wait, what? She seemed to be this Dexter character until this moment. And now I'm like, wait. Is he a hamburger or does she like read his thoughts or did she like scope out all of his like behavior for the longest time and knew to get him? Is there backstory that is necessary or unnecessary? Maybe she killed that one character so that it would throw us off. Like if we could just tie her down to a label level, she only kills men who do bad things. Then there's a kind of ism attached to that. There's a kind of, there's a kind of tropiness attached she's to that. She's trying to keep us from labeling yeah. things, bitch. She's keep, yeah, she's keeping us on our feet. The idea is that you can't tie down people to that degree. I mean, that's like literally her quote when she was asked if this is a feminist film. So maybe it's something like that. Maybe it's throwing people off. There's a lot of that contrast in this movie. There's a lot of what, th I mean, what things look like aren't necessarily the way things are. Um, so maybe this is just another example of that. So I want to I want to sort of like build on what you just said, though, about like power structures and stuff like that. And that's that's a fantastic and interesting point to make about how this all sort of like ties into the horror genre in general. Um, I would almost sort of call that intersectionality as opposed to just feminism, though. And so like that really is kind of like at the heart of saying, OK, well, you know, there are these certain classes and groups in society that have power, those that don't. And so that just automatically kind of lends itself to a sort of oppression, whether it's intended or not. Um, and I do want to say that, uh, especially going back to this feminism point, like I, I really think that like the core, um, man, like the the core importance of the rockabilly, uh, the rockabilly uh, in this film, who is the trans person dancing with the balloon, um, is to kind of sort of also transcend that barrier. And I think like going back to culture uh, as we understand it today in America, you know, we do have groups of feminists, uh, particularly trans exclusionary radical feminists, who 
don't see that type of person as being um, inclusive um, in into the group of what they would deem women. And so there's also this element there that certain types of feminism are going to be exclusive to, you know, trans rights and trans people. And so, you know, if we do want to talk about this being anything, it might be an intersectional film as opposed to just being necessarily feminist. Now, I don't want to say that obviously all feminists are definitely not TERFs. Um, <laughs> that's, that's very clearly the case. Um, just to go ahead and point that out, but there is that element there as well. So the trans person is interesting on that note because I th I think of all the people in this movie, like most everyone in this movie is either affected or or it, they're radically transformed or at minimum affected by the girl, by the vampire. But one of the only people that isn't who kind of keeps an eye on everything is 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 the is the rockabilly, right? I, I think that that maybe highlighting the degree to which maybe a trans person knows themselves better than most, that they say static, that they're not irrevocably changed by a lot of the dynamics of this one person and through the story, through everything going on in the movie. I think of that um, balloon dance, um, and I love that scene. I mean, that scene happens, I think, right after uh, the scene with Arash and the girl right in her room where she puts his neck up and they're playing that music in the background. It's a gorgeous scene, right? And I. I think that dance signifies a kind of playing with fire. You know what I mean? Like it's it's sort of, it's a rash dancing with essentially the girl, um, keeping it at a distance, but dancing with it, like pulling it closer, keeping it back, you know? So I I think there's something there that, that the trans character is definitely a standout. The rockabilly is definitely a standout character in this. And someone who's not um, even remotely changed by the happenings of what's going on in the movie all the dynamics of, of change and people's lives being altered and people dying and things like that. And I think there's a lesson in that, that, you know, in this world of contrast in the world of, Hey, things aren't always as they seem on the surface. There's this one character in the entire movie that's static. And it's the one who likely knows themselves better than anyone else. You know what I mean? I mean, this is what we're saying this movie is about. It's about a person. It's about the director. It's about culture. It's about their background and all the shifting dynamics of, you know, Iran and the United States and the UK and all of this. And then there's this one character that's just is who she is, right? Um, so that's, I find that interesting. I think it's Shakespearean in a way. Uh, there's always this kind of uh, narrator type character that is uh, presented in the beginning, who's kind of like, ah, oh, this is our story. And in the beginning, and by the way, I, I needed to point this out. And uh, when you guys are doing intros, I didn't get to it, but I, I want to argue that this is not just a, a a film that isn't Farsi, but a film that's also a silent film. I want to make that argument too. Um, in the beginning, when we see the the main guy character hanging out, we're seeing it from the Rockbilly chick's perspective. She's our narrator. She's the person who stays the same throughout and is just like, here's our story, guys. There was a guy, there was a girl, there was a cat. <laughs> we were in bad city, <laughs> and, but it's, it's, it's Shakespearean in that element. So um, I think that's what her character represents. And it's so perfect to have a, a trans woman be that character and to have a moment of balloon dancing in between, like, ha ha ha, look at the drama unfold, folks. This is the craziness of the world in bad city. <laughs> and it's just, it's beautiful. Yeah, if I, I really want to elaborate on that scene just a little bit more too. So that's 
that's absolutely true. Like there's this perspective you get taken, which the rockabilla can be seen as kind of like the transition between different acts as well. Like she always sort of shows up when, when sort of like there there's major changes within whatever story we happen to have, but that scene, my God. Um, yes, Noah, I think that there, you can actually think about this as like, <laughs> you can actually think about this as Arash uh, dancing with the girl. Whenever he first meets her, his perspective is she, he comes up to her and says, don't worry. It makes this conscious choice. I won't hurt you. And I think that's really what kind of like speaks to her heart and like what takes her off guard because so far the only two types of male characters that she's seen in her journeys through the city at night are those that are afraid of her and those that seek to do her harm. And then you have this guy who, albeit is on ecstasy, uh, presumably, um, comes up to her in a very warm and genuine way and is so completely vulnerable in his own. Like, he can't do shit, but he <laughs> makes this choice that is significant to him to say, I am just going to see you as a person. Don't worry. Everything's okay. I'm here. I'm just going to talk to you. You know, there's there's no danger. And so like you can kind of see him maybe from his perspective, he is he is the he is the rockabilly dancing with the fragile object of the balloon, where if you get too close, if you're too dangerous, like if you if you're too aggressive, whatever, you might destroy it. But in reality, as we know, and perhaps from the girl's perspective, she is the rockabilly dancing with a rush. This person is right there. She has him in her apartment, you know, head back. She's right there at his neck, listening to his heart he is at her mercy. He is at her mercy. And yet she's just sort of enjoying him for what he is. Right. But there's also this sense in which the electricity between them can easily be destroyed if they go any further in sort of like a physical act or a sex act. Right. I mean, if they, if they express the passion that they have, you know, there's also that, that, that tension that is represented by the balloon and the kind of like the space between them that, once you get too close, that is immediately destroyed, and then their relationship is going to permanently change. Like, there are so many fucking layers. There are so many layers that can be derived from this scene that you could talk about probably this one thing from the film for the entire podcast, and I'm I'm not exaggerating. I feel like I could talk about that just for a couple hours by itself. And I think that's a microcosm just for the rest of the film, right? I mean, like, I, I don't know. I don't know whether she is actually a genius and whether this was intentional. But as a piece of art, I mean, it works, man. It works. Yeah, I think I think your interpretation of that scene is right on. That's uh, that's precisely what she's going for. And I think that's precisely what she achieves. Uh, the question is, is whether or not you can sort of I'm about to sneeze Nope, I'm not. Okay. Um, <laughs> the question is whether or not that that type of artistry and those that ability to sort of capture those moments and capture the essence of those moments are enough to hang the whole film on. And I think the, the entire film is kind of built on those long moments of silence and that energy between two people before they touch and then how that... Uh, how if they touch is going to irreparably or irrevocably, I should say, irrevocably change their relationship. I think that's a lot of what this film is about. And vampirism sort of works as a metaphor for that, uh, that, that the irrevocability of physical contact. Once physical contact is made, what is that? How does that change relationships? And uh, I mean, we could, 
I don't know if we want to go back to some of the earlier questions that we were exploring, but certainly within Arab and Muslim culture, you will see couples walking down the street. They won't be holding hands. They won't be doing it. Like, but there's a clear relationship between a husband and for, or for example, his wife, and there will be no physical contact between those two people because it's sort of verboten to actually have physical contact in public in many cases. Um, of course, the Arab world is 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 varied and different in in each culture. But uh, in in my own experiences with it, I found interesting that I would witness couples walking down the street or couples together, and there would be literally no physical contact between them. And so. Uh, when we're talking about whether or not it's an Iranian film or an American film, and you know we're trying to put it in that ism, um, which may or may not be a mistake, the, another support for the idea that it's Iranian uh, has to do with the fact that it's. I think it's exploring that sort of cultural more motif that is common in Arab and Muslim cultures. We we also see that in the other scene. Come to think of it, where Arash is working on the TV or something for the the. The princess, I think is what they call her, the beautiful lady, the rich lady, and uh, says, you know, hey, I mean, he does this to get her out of the room for a different reason because he wants to steal the earrings. But he says, you know, what do you what do your parents think if we're in here together? Right. So that I think that adds more weight right. to Jim's, Jim's perspective. Mm. Interesting. I will I will say this. Um, she captured a thing that's real. Um, when you first fall for someone but you're like, you don't know if they've fallen for you and you don't know if it'll work. You know, there's that moment where you're like, I'm gonna share one of my nerdy fan things with them. Let's see what happens if I, and you know, you test with a movie or a TV show or maybe a record as she did, but you're like, ah, oh, will this react? Will this make them react? Do we connect with our nerdy, like geeky culture stuff? And so she puts on a record and then he wakes up from the dead practically. And then there's that like creeping closeness. Oh, you could cut it with butter. That is the, that is romance for me. That is fucking romance to me because literally they're being drawn together by music, by something they both are like nerding out over. And it's, it's, oh, that is hot. That is <laughs> porn for me. And they don't even really do anything, but that if you wanted to make porn for Shayra, that's exactly what porn for Shayra would look like, especially the disco ball. Like, oh, yes. Perfect. Yeah. Shayra's <laughs> Pornhub account is just clips from A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. It's just, yeah, it's just the spinning ball clip. Hers yeah. is the only porn where nobody touches each other. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, you know, in that scene, I think, I think like the entire, that entire song is played out. Al almost the entirety of that song is played out during that scene. Like it's like four minutes that scene. Like this is a very meditative movie. It's very slow and calm. And Shayra, you mentioned uh, earlier that you, you know you wanted to make the argument this is a silent film in some ways. It really is. There's almost no dialogue in this movie. Like we know the dialogue sequences, but overall for the entirety, was it like an, an hour and forty or whatever this movie is? I mean, there's very little dialogue. There's elements of Nosferatu in this, uh, heavily in this. Oh, by the, that's what I was gonna say. The the scene with um, when the girl finally meets Arash, um, you know, and and he's empathetic and says, "I'm not gonna hurt you." That was clearly the most important intellectual part of it. But my favorite part of that was her skateboarding and seeing Dracula look up at a light bulb, just staring at it. And she skateboards and she just kind of stops and goes, there's like a moment where she's like, 
what the fuck did I just see behind me? And kind of turns around and does this. That's probably my favorite part of the whole movie. Like there's a lot of little comedy things like that in this movie. And that was the one I dug the most. Like the irony of a vampire skateboard. I mean, think of that. Like a vampire skateboarding down an empty street sees another vampire looking dude dressed as Dracula looking up at a lamppost. Like what? you couldn't make this shit up. That's insane. Uh, probably my favorite part of the movie, to be honest. It's the most real part because yeah. it's 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 the kind of shit that actually happens and the actual things that bring us together as people. We're like, Dean, do you need something? Are you okay? And they're like, oh, I don't hurt you. Whoa, where am I? <laughs> You're just like, oh shit. Yeah, it threw but her off though. It totally, her, it totally threw her off though. I think that's, I think Ben's right. Like she's used to a certain, a certain dude, right? And this guy comes up and immediately says, I'm not gonna harm you. And he's clearly a little, he's inebriated on something. He's messed up. And I think she knows that, but it just makes him look all the more innocent and cute, you know? And yeah, what yeah. woke him? What woke him? Yeah, the music that art. music art. Yeah. It's fucking, it's gorgeous. It's it's true romance. One more point about that scene too. I think it's really good if we if we go back to the contrast element for a moment where we kind of first start to see the contrast in her character. Because obviously, like I, I think the embodiment of the girl really in, in that particular point, we begin to see that not only is she vicious, but she can be vulnerable. Like she's not necessarily ferocious only, but she's also feminine. Um, and you really kind of like start to see like that character development too. And the character development that we see doesn't necessarily even have to come about through dialogue. It's really just about kind of like these visual elements that get pulled together where she's dominant. She's dominant for the rest for the, for the entire movie up to that point. She's attacking, you know, like the, the, the pimp or whatever, and like totally just like fucking him up. But like at this point she gets taken off, off guard and you, you kind of like start to see a little bit of that, that sort of like sensitivity too. And, and, no words were necessary for that to happen. It was just this moment where she saw this person, her facial expression, her body language, the shot, all of that stuff framed the character development for us without a single word needing to be exchanged. Oh, my God. My God. Gorgeousity. So, <laughs> so, I'm going to borrow from last week. Gorgeousity. <laughs> so all of that is beautiful, but I got to say the most beautiful part of this movie that just touched my heart was the pimp dancing, doing this dance thing to her. That just, that hit me in my Can, soul. I don't know I if you guys, uh, I don't know if you guys watched uh, which videos you guys watched on the making of this, but I think my favorite nugget of information, let me know if you heard this one. He has tattoos all over his body. This actor is not a pimp. He does not have tattoos. This is a very good old boy looking nice guy. You know, he's got the nice guy look. But uh, she had to make him look kind of scary. So she wanted to put tattoos on him. She got her mom to do the calligraphy on him. She had her mom make him into this scary character. And honestly, like, he does embody that, like, scary predator monster type and it's so funny because there's two predators in the room and you know it's a cat fight it is literally a cat fight about to go down like who's going to win and you're just waiting for that <laughs> well not only that but one in that scene one clearly looks like the like i like when i see that scene i'm not, i'm scared for him do you know what i mean like and i like i was scared for him like that little sex thing on your he neck thought about to get it was, ripped off. He thought it was a tiny, cute little mouse, but. 
No. It's yeah, what's not. that old what's that old uh, redneck saying a darking a barking dog doesn't bite, right? Like it's the person that has to put the tattoos all over themselves and look scary that isn't necessarily the one that's going to do the most harm. It's the it's the meek little vampire that's about to bite off your finger. <laughs> one more interesting thing about that character though too is that like his persona and I think I, I I noticed this and I saw this before I even watched kind of like the interviews and stuff about like the character development there, but uh Amber Port, she based this person off of Ninja from Deontward. And I think it's so fucking obvious. Like I, I I love that she did that. And it also again points to another layer in her character. We get character development for the director through this movie, not just the characters. Let me let me go ahead and point that out. But it shows us how important music is to her decision making in her life and like her artistic choices, right? Like how important is music that one character in this movie was entirely devoted or at least based on the image that this one person puts forward in this like weird random obscure kind of like edm rap group from south africa right how cool is that one more but on top of that she she robs him of all this jewelry thinking this is how she gets her cash but she gave that to the other woman what did she actually steal from him for herself it was cds she stole his fucking music. music i was like oh my god this is the most beautiful thing I have ever seen in my life because that's how I feel about that's how I feel about music. Sometimes when you find those like really obscure like random bands, you have this CD that probably only a hundred of them have been made, and it's just some random thing. I, this actually happened with uh, there was a documentary made about this singer band guy, and Kurt Cobain wore a T-shirt with his tape cassette like imagery on his shirt, and then all of a sudden everybody wanted to know who this musical artist was they were like who's this guy blah, blah and they wanted tape cassettes but the you know they were obscure you couldn't find that shit it was it was rare music that becomes gold and that is if you are a vampire and you live forever right what is going to be your gold what is going to be your silver it's not going to be gold and silver it's going to be culture it's going to be the things from those moments in time that you lived in and that's why she's listening to stuff that might be more 80s style or, you know, might even have some kind of weird twist of another, uh, you know, decade she lived in. She is so old that she's like, I have to still feel attached to the culture that I'm living in right now. So she has to find elements of these other cultures she's lived in through time and attach it to the one that she's living in now. Well, you just gave me my backstory that I was looking for in my intro. I, I like that. That's uh that I did not think of that. That's really cool. You're right. That's what a vampire would want. They would want something that lasts, right? Lionel Richie, remember that? Like, yeah, that's that's something that lasts. Um, this movie, music. This movie's very uh, boundary pushing, I think, in a lot of ways. I mean, some of the ways that we talked about tonight, but also consider that, you know, the girl in this movie is is kind of both the villain, but also the final girl who leaves the city. Which is strange. It's a very I can't think of many other films uh, that have something like that. Um, but I think overall, looking at this movie, I think the lens we're all looking at it through—the one that seems to make the most sense and explain the the majority of this movie the right way—is the contrast. Looking at complexity versus simplicity, black and white versus color. Um, the director, as uh, you know, someone who you may think is fill in the blank, but who actually is fill in the blank like simple but complex. Um, and I really dig that. Um, 
I think that's kind of that's what there's also a time there's also a time situation I I really feel necessary to bring up okay so hear me out on this when women have been on the earth long enough we've realized there's generally a, a problem with certain parts of mankind right we start to get a little bit bitter and you see this in the character who's in her 30s and and the pimp's talking to her and he's like so you're not gonna be able to make babies soon your parents are probably gonna like be pissed off about that you know you should probably you know make some babies and so it, it it's all these ideas of like what it is to be a real woman right and it, it's this idea that you're not supposed to age first off you're not supposed to age you're not supposed to grow old that's wrong you don't want to get to that point but uh also there's just this part of all human beings you don't want to die that sounds horrible, right? Well, some of us were totally fine with dying. <laughs> and there's a whole meme culture behind that. But, uh, you know, there's there's this idea like, oh, I, I don't want to die. That's what vampirism is. That's where that whole trope comes from. It's this idea like, I don't want to die. I want to read every book. I want to watch every movie. I want to listen to every album. I want to I want to absorb everything that ever existed. But you'll get a bitterness. And you see this in, uh, you know, Anne Rice's books, this idea of like, you just start to get a little bit, everything gets old everything gets redundant. Nothing ever gets better. And um, like, what do you do with your life at that point when you can just actually predict everything because you've lived so long that you can predict how horrible humankind is going to be to one another. So it, I definitely think it attached to that. And that's why that moment when she's skateboarding and sees Dracula looking at a light, that's why it threw her off. She's like, the fuck is this shit? Because she's lived for so long through all this bullshit. And this guy is just like, I'm an innocent guy. And she's like, what the fuck? That doesn't exist. <laughs> well, she's enamored by it in the way that he's enamored by the light bulb. Right? Yeah. Like, Moth to flame. Yeah. They're both. Yeah. There's a sense when they're both doing that in that scene. One because of MDMA and the other because of empathy. And <laughs> like, what is this thing? What? What? He's uh, so cute. Look how he's so helpless. Aw. And but that's actually what happens to us women as we age. As an old woman, I get to say this. We can become very bitter and we become very angry at some of the bullshit that's happened to us. And we're worried about other women going through certain shit. So um, and she might not have even been thinking of this from a woman's perspective. It just might be her perspective on the world. But you just start to get to this point where you're like, I can't trust anybody. Everybody's shit. And then you see this innocent person, and you're like, oh. Oh, a puppy. Look, he's yeah. so cute. <laughs> and, and, you know, you just, you melt. So. Yeah, for those that don't know, Shayra is actually 85. She's uh, 85 years old. She, uh, yeah, this is, she, yeah, uh, it's, she's just got a good it's, complexion. It's the yeah, skin cream, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, it's because um, I never leave the house. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Like a vampire, <laughs> the sun sucks. Um, so I want to I want to comment on a couple things that that were said first. Uh, Noah, you talked about how the girl is both the final girl and the predator. I wonder if Amash isn't the final girl, um, and that there's that moment in the car where you know there's the tension is almost built in the sense of is she going to kill him or is he going to like what is his reaction to finding out that about the death of his father etc cetera, etc cetera. and that instead of violence they 
choose love. They choose to go off together in sort of a, a romantic, um, the kind of a romantic end. And another thing that, that I thought about while, while you were talking, Shayra, was, uh, yeah, we got this moment where he's staring up the light bulb. And that's the moment where I think there's a lot of his tough guy tropes had been washed away. And so in when we first meet him, he's kind of, he's, he's framed in this kind of James Dean uh, archetype and these uh, kind of rough and tumble Western tropes uh, that, that are getting explored through both the costume design and through the way he's standing smoking his cigarettes and on and on and on in the sunglasses. Cool car. Cool car, exactly. And all of that gets taken away from him and instead it's just this dumb, easily see-throughable artifice of him being a vampire. And I think that's it's sort of the... I, I guess what I'm trying to lead us toward is this film seems to be saying something about love and relationships as one of those things that kind of transcends the tropes and the isms and the and the other bullshit associated with uh, um, vampiric society and Iranian society, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm wondering if if I'm if I'm the only one who picked up on that, or if that's something that you guys were. Are you saying love conquers all? I am not saying love conquers all. I don't think love conquers at all. Remember, I just argued for the horror version of love actually just last Friday. So no. Love that. I do thank you. Love much. love conquers all whether you like it or not. I think yeah. that that but I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that I think the film might be saying that. Mm. And that's an interesting thing for a film to be saying when we've got these themes that we've already sort of sussed out about uh, feminism and hybridity and uh, the interchangeability of um, labels or the the lack of uh, the ap lack of the application of labels, whether or not love is the thing that actually transcends all of those all of those aspects of culture and society. Um, that we may not be able to find a nice guy in Iranian society, but as long as we've got one guy who likes the same music that you do, well, then we can make it work and leave Bad City. Um, I at least that's that's what I was. That's how I viewed the ending of this film and some of the other aspects of it. Well, I think the I think so. Let's look at the scene at the very end where Arash gets out of his car and she's looking at him and he looks back at her. It's is the balloon gonna pop? That's what that scene is about. Is the balloon going to pop? The tension is there. And I, I, you know, what ends up happening is the balloon dance continues. It doesn't pop. He gets back in the car and that dance continues on and we'll never know. Right. Um, so but I think that's that so much like the ending was so much like, uh, God damn it. I can't think of the name of the fucking, uh, the, the graduate. It oh, had such right. a graduate ending where they're just awkward sitting in silence together. And you're like, did they make the right decision? Where does this go from here? Is it okay? Are the actors even knowing that the film is still going? It's like... That shot was so much like one of the shots from Pulp Fiction, though, that I thought that that's what she was referencing rather than The Graduate. The Graduate is this moment where it's like, where they, they've got this, this, this euphoria about this 
this radical thing that they just did. And then the reality slowly starts to dawn on them. And they're like, oh, shit. We just ended a marriage, changed our lives. And I don't really know if this is the right idea. But I'm stuck with it. Uh, like that's how I see that that last moment of the. Grad that's what love is. That, that's that's how, literally what yeah. love is. Yeah, that, that's what I. That's how I saw the ending of this movie. Uh, literally, the way you're describing it is is are we making so, at least for a rash? A rash is like, did I? Is this right? I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna take a breather, and I'm gonna look over. Did is this the right thing? And he ends up driving away with her. So I mean, I saw that as a quite similar. Uh, ending but that's that's romantic to me and once again maybe this is just a sign of my weird idea of romance but like that's literally what you do in a relationship you fall for each other you might even do something like you know what let's do this and you start to like think about it and you're like is this crazy am i crazy this might be crazy i think i'm losing my fucking mind you know what let's go with it <laughs> and the answer yeah. is always yes yes you are crazy <laughs> Yeah, love makes love makes you do crazy things. That's that's part of. I think that that is how this ending is meant to be interpreted. Can we talk about the build up to that a little bit, though? I mean, because like I, I feel like one of the most important elements of this movie is going to be Arash's relationship with his father and how that kind of plays out. Yes. One of the things, yeah, like one of the things that we really think about in the ending of this movie, especially when when you talk about Arash's his is kind of like internal monologue you know am i crazy he just found out i'm pretty sure he just realized because because the girl has that cat i think he figures out that she's the one that killed his father yes. right yeah and whether or not he's okay with this and so like the build up to this obviously and like i guess this is the part where we go into like heavy spoilers um is that he has this fight with his father. It's about his father's addiction. It's about how this man is kind of like dragging him down because of like his sicknesses and his illnesses, which also I think is probably commentary on like patriarchy. And like, you could probably have a divergence about that as well. But so he kicks his father out because he's tired of all this. He says here, here's what you want. Here's this money. Here are these drugs. Get out. I'm done with you. I'm cutting ties for better or worse. And then suddenly he finds out the next morning that his father is dead in the street. Now, I don't think that he had a different expectation about that, right? Like, I don't think he wanted that to happen. But I expected that when he handed his father a bunch of drugs and shit, that he probably wasn't going to make the best life choices. He wasn't going to clean up after that one last hit of heroin, right? I don't think he expected that the girl that he's been sort of getting more interested in was going to be the cause of that death. And so, like, that pivotal moment, whenever he stops the car, they're at the crossroads, uh, and he gets out, and he has that little moment where he kind of, like, thinks about what's going on. You don't know what's going to happen. Maybe he's going to react negatively, but he doesn't. He just gets back in the car. He pulls a tape out. He puts in that music, and they go on with their lives. Really fantastic. Really kind of interesting. And again, like if you want to sort of layer in kind of like the conversation there about, you know, okay, we're going to we're going to shed the the biases and the illnesses of our forefathers. We're going to move forward with this new dynamic and this new understanding of each other as people. And yes, sort of tying that into a love story. That also really makes me wonder, though, because this is so clearly, so clearly kind of like a love story-ish sort of like driven film. Like, how much is this really a horror film? 
this is something that I'm wrestling on. Honestly, like this is something that I'm really wrestling with having viewed this. And I'm pretty sure that it's supposed to be, it has definite horror elements, like not just because one of the main characters is a vampire and because like we have these callbacks to Nosferatu and like film noir, but I mean, it's, there's, there's so many genres being piled together here that I think it's really confusing as to what exactly it is that we're watching as far as a genre film is concerned. It's clearly a rebel without a cause for the modern age. <laughs> no, I, I mean, you're right. It's in my mind, this is a great love story, but I also have that same kind of feeling from, I think it's called warm hearts or I can't remember what it's called. It was the zombie love, like Romeo Juliet film. Warm bodies. Warm bodies. That's it. Thank you. Nicholas Holt. Yeah. Yeah. That was a romance movie. Like people are like, Oh, it has zombies. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, zombie love story and love ends up curing zombieism in in that film and whether or not oh shit spoilers for warm bodies anyway uh yeah love ends up curing uh zombieism in warm bodies and love conquers all in a girl walks home alone at night uh yeah there's certainly something there's a lot of romance there's not a lot of lovey dovey stuff in this movie and I'm not always uh, on with on board with it. Uh, I that I hate been our romance. I hate romance. I loved I loved this idea of romance because it's dark hate... and fucked. <laughs> it's not, but it's not though. There's no sense in which I don't necessarily think that the a girl walks home alone at night too is going to be Arasha uh, Arasha's uh, death. Like I think they're gonna. I agree. Make it go. Uh, the question is, is whether or not. You know what's going to happen when he gets old and stops looking like James Dean? Unless uh, she makes him a vampire too, or whatever. And we if, hopefully there's no sequel to this movie. That would be right, right. I mean, that's <laughs> worst <laughs> sequel ever. I don't know how you actually. That would be a good challenge for you. How would you make a sequel out of this? You couldn't. That's well, my argument. The uh, yeah, one of the uh, one of the possible deadly analysis shortcuts is. Uh, pitch a sequel to a horror film that doesn't already have one. So uh, I, I don't know. Maybe I Are could. you guys both challenge accepting this? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, don't think, some... I, I don't think I have an idea for A Girl Who Walks Home Alone at Night too. I think uh, I think the, I'd have to know the director a little bit better than I do in order to do that. Well, too. you already you already so, saw this. I mean, World War Z, you, we hit World War Z. So we, we did. And you, and you guys did a pitch for this, I think, in one of your other. So World War Z 2, Love Conquers mm -hmm. All. And basically what happens is just the love. One guy gets up there in a mic and just says, I love you to all these zombies. And they're just cured suddenly. Their skin right. doesn't fall off anymore. They all come back that's, to normal. All I, of that's exactly how love works. Yeah. I It's yeah. it's science. It's confirmed. Watching. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And psychology uh, too. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, I like, um, I think again, going to Ben's point, is this a horror movie? So we, we've done like, is this a feminist movie? Is this a horror movie? So this is the point of the movie. Is, is this an Iranian film? Is this yeah. an Iranian film? So that's that's the key. The key that the director what the threw fuck in. is this? Yeah, like what are we, like what is this? And to answer what is this is to ascribe a label of sorts to to confine in some way, even if it's appropriate, right? Like we're, whether or not we think it's appropriate or not, and there's a sense in which this is a horror podcast, so it makes sense to ask the question, eh, I'm really struggling, is this really a horror movie? Same thing for me. The only reason it's a horror film to me is that there's a vampire in it. Um, the sequences of violence are very quick, 
fast, they're not drawn out, and then everything else is slow. So And they're almost justified, so it's like, eh, whatever. Yeah, so at, at a certain point, it's like, well, yeah, so, but that's, but you realize for the last hour and 20 minutes, we've been dancing around the question, is this movie X? How does it fall into this category? And I think that shows the director did a really good job in bringing up particular points that show the complexity, the 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 anti-black and whiteness, if you will, of just who she is as a person, how she threw it into the movie. This movie is an extension of her hands. Do you know what I mean? And so when we ask these questions, we're proving her point. We're saying, you know, obviously when we try to confine this movie to particular boundaries, we end up realizing that it's not that simple, you know, and these are the answers we've been providing each other all night is that it's really not that simple. Here's why. And that's what it's like to be an Iranian American who, you know, went to UCLA and went to film school. This is her life that we're essentially talking about. Uh, she's also in this movie. It's one of the things we didn't bring up is there's a, a scene where she's actually in the film, uh, but at the party with the princess. Um, so, uh, you know, kudos to her because this is, we've been dancing around what she wanted us to dance around all night with that balloon, if you will. Uh, so yeah, uh, good, good on her. This is, uh, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot more to chew on here than I initially thought. What you're saying on. is this black and white film is not so black and white. Not at all, not ah, at all, ah. yeah. I, yeah. And I agree, and I think the other thing is uh, she has a, she's a hopeless romantic, but about the realism of what is romantic, what is love. It is, we're all broken. We've all been shattered in some way. We've all been cracked and chunked away in some way. Life continues to kind of mess you up a little bit. We're all in um, bad city. We're all in bad city, all of us. And, and the cool thing is, is you get to find a, a, a broken person that is, you know, kind of on your level and, and you get to be broken together with your cat happily ever after. And you know what? That is a beautiful story. I don't know if it's horror, uh, but it is beautiful and I love it. And, oh, I wanted to, um, before we go off into other worlds, I wanted to give a shout out to her cousin, Sina. Uh, Sina is the producer of this film. And uh, ever since they were little, little teeny tiny kids, and I appreciate this so much because I was the same way as a kid. And I used to get my cousins and sisters and family members and friends and put them into my weird podcasts and movies I'd make. Her and her cousin would get camcorder her dad got and they would make movies. Uh, and at first they started to try to emulate like commercials and stuff like they did a Zestfully Clean commercial. They did other commercials. Uh, I did that kind of stuff with my family members and Cena grew up with her into this place where he was actually the producer of her first feature length film. And uh, he's also the owner of this beautiful fucking cat that's in this film, uh, which, <laughs> which they put in this movie and is probably the star of the fucking film. But uh, I, I want to give a shout out to him. He did die recently. And I, it's really sad that this person who she was super creative with and was able to make these wonderful things with her whole life, it's sad that he did uh, die recently. And and I just want to give my love to family members that work in that way together creatively. And I, I wish my family members were still working with me creatively in that way. That would be awesome. But um, I don't know. I felt that in my soul. Uh, it's just when you find your family, whether it's blood related or not, 
when you find your family, those are your brothers, those are your sisters. And I'd like to think that you guys are, you know, kind of like brothers to me at this point. We've been around here for a while together. And uh, no, we're, we... we're going to make a zestfully clean commercial. That's <laughs> our, our first project. You're but... not fully clean until you... Oh, wait, I don't want copyright. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. For artistic purposes. Yeah, we're not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I said cest. Uh, it's S-I-S-T. Yeah, we're cistfully clean. We got no cyst. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, this I God, I'm so sorry, Shira. You were talking about something so serious, and then I, yeah, I, I just so it's it, very it really sweet. Is. And then we started talking about copyright. Yeah, but yeah. Like the that's pretty postmodern of us. Yeah, it is postmodern. <laughs> but I I just think it's so beautiful. Like the idea that you worked with somebody for so long, like your whole childhood. It's it's like I feel for her and. I, I don't know if she'll ever watch this, but I love that. I think that's great when you are family like that. It's so cool. So, and I love that fucking cat. God damn it! That was like the perfect cat actor. I think I thought it was professional too. I think that's her cat. I could be mistaken. Well, I think it is now. Uh, it was her cousin's originally, oh. but she called him. She called him her brother though because they grew up together so closely that she she called him her brother. In many interviews so um and in fact yeah. he is he's in the posters <laughs> she superimposed his face on one of the posters in the background i think i think she even put his name on the poster and he has like luxurious hair like flowing and stuff and uh he was like i i wish i looked like this she's like you do look like this what are you talking about <laughs> <laughs> That's really, that's really cool. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Um, she poured herself into this movie in layers, just family, people. It's about her. I really, I really respect that. I mean, a lot of films in a lot of ways are like that with people that write and direct their own movies. But this feels like we're talking about a person. You know what I mean? Every element of this movie that we're critiquing or that we're finding interesting or fascinating is an element of who the director and the writer is, um, all of it. And that's really cool. You know what I mean? It's almost impossible to separate a person from a lot of what we're saying here. It, it, it describes the complexity of a particular human being that's walking this earth. And I find that fucking fascinating. I think that's awesome. Um, in fact, this conversation has made me rate the film higher. I mean, I don't know if we want to get into that, if you guys have any other things you guys want to add, but I had a particular score coming into this and it's a lot higher now. Um, well, anyway. there's a different, I, I, yeah, I mean, I'll just real quick, we could, we could go to final thoughts in a second, but my, my quick thing is, you know, I watched some of the interviews, I think some, some of the similar interviews that Shira and Ben watched as well. And, you know, the energy of the film and the energy of the director are vastly different. Uh, like the, the director is just, she's she's a mile a minute she's a, i mean she's a she reminds me a little bit of the way quentin tarantino talks and uh she's you know effervescently cool and the film is very slow and deliberate and careful um there it's got some weird things some some kind of um manic pixie dream vampire moments uh where the or she's skateboarding down the street and all that. But uh, overall, the film's got a very slow and and um, deliberate pace to it, which is very different from the energy that comes off of the director during any of her interviews. And and I find that to be, I don't know, I, I find that to be interesting 
especially because I agree with the fact that most of the things we're we're talking about, we're actually talking about the director's uh, sort of what she has put out there as as her persona. Yeah, that is that is really interesting. I, I definitely see what you're talking about. Um, there's elements going both ways though, too. Like her personality does seem much more energetic, energetic, and maybe a little bit more ADHD. Like if, if you want to like color, color it in that way, I think that's the best way that I know how to describe it is that she's a little bit everywhere in some ways, um, in her interviews, whereas this film is quite the opposite. And like you have this, like you were saying, this very deliberate pacing, this lack of dialogue, as opposed to an overabundance of words, this, um, this emphasis on, the minutiae like okay and, and and this sort of calls into the the reference about like spaghetti westerns and stuff where you have these shots that are incredibly meticulous and close up uh also contrasted with these like large landscapes and like all of that is very purposefully done um but i also think that this film couldn't have been made by anybody but her and like that's what i think i, I really do enjoy about this and so this isn't going to go into my final thoughts like too much but I, I do think that 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 is an amazing quality to have. And there are a few directors that I know of that a few, like I'm not like a huge director expert as I've already revealed earlier in this podcast, but there are a few directors that I think that you can really pick out and say, yes, this is a David Lynch film. This is a Lars von Trier film. This is a Quentin Tarantino film. This is a Anna Lily. I'm your poor film. And so that makes me have a lot of hope potentially for her career. Like she has two feature length films now, the other one being the bad batch. I think some of her current work is focused on TV episodes, but I really do hope to see some of her work in the future uh, with feature length films. I think she's going to do a really great job. And I, I, I think I, I wanted to throw the question out there of whether or not it's a good thing to have films that are so like quirky and unique and bizarre that you can say, this is absolutely this director that made this, or if we want to have things that are like more generic, generic and like pop art, but it's something that I really appreciate because it tells you that this isn't a person I think that's just making films for money. They're making a film because it's art that they want to create. Right. So like, that's something that I really appreciate. There's a sense in which Von Trier is like that too, that he, he, I think he pours uh, a, a, a little bit of, he peppers a little bit of trollery on, onto that. But I think that when we watch a Von Trier film, we know we're watching a Von Trier film. We can go, ah, ah, I see what you did there, you sly fuck. Um, so, you know, and he's clearly, according to Amarpour, the most feminist director too. So he's got that going for him. Uh, hey, I, you guys, you guys follow me here. Yeah, there's a thought I had when you guys were talking about sort of how the director fits into this film, how the writer and director fits into this movie. You know, everything in this movie is amb ambient. There's it, the, the lighting in this movie, almost every character is lit by ambient lighting, even during the day. Um, and that itself is kind of <laughs> analogous to like, well, I even the scene with Dracula looking up at the light, L lighting plays a big role in this. It's almost like we see everyone else through the perspective, through the light of who the writer and director is. I, I think like all these characters are, are lit by one particular thing. Um, it, the sun plays a very small role in this movie, except for pieces of the intro and maybe one, maybe one or two small scenes um, throughout the, the course of the movie. But even then, even during the scenes of the daytime, characters are actually lit inside of their house by ambient lighting. Um, which is itself, I think, interesting and unique. Um, I think the camera work, the lighting, and some of the stuff we didn't get even into with sound, I think, is representative of 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 this director. That like, there there's shadows all over this movie, and there's shadows of who the director is. Like, there's something there with that. It's 
the director casting herself onto all of these different characters and the dance that they all have together. Um, and that's unique in this movie. I can't think of another movie where everyone is cast in ambient lighting in the way it's so obvious in this movie, you know? And it, it could just be because it's anamorphic black and white, but I, it's on purpose. Like we're starting to realize how on purpose it is, you know, um, which is cool. Well, that's what's, that's what's funny because everybody was saying, oh, she's in the movie. And I'm like, yeah, everywhere. <laughs> like, I think it's even in the cat. I don't know how she got her cat in like involved in who she is, but I think even the cat was representing her. At that yeah, point. She just went for it. Even from like that, I think what you're talking about now is really representative of kind of like the film noir style, right? So it's like, you have either people are shot at night and so you kind of only have that kind of that incandescent street lamp light on them or in the daytime they're indoors which i don't think is necessarily just because we're talking about a vampire film because like it's everyone you know what i mean it's like vampires really can't go out in the daylight but in this film it doesn't seem like very many people do except in the cases where like you're going out in the morning and you see arash's father you know in the street and stuff like that but like yeah like what you're talking about i think is it's kind of like her influence coming from drawing yet another genre into this film but one other layer that i want to throw on this too it's like yeah like she she permeates every every scene every word every shot and she's literally in the film and i don't necessarily think in this case it's a bad thing there are examples of films where the directors literally come in and play characters and i think it doesn't work <laughs> um because i know i arrogant. know which movie you're talking about i know which movie you're talking but about but it seems arrogant sorry it i finally so seized <laughs> It just it just seems so like ah oh god like it's cringy when when if if you do it the wrong way it's cringy if you do it the wrong way, um, but in this particular case like the role that she actually played was very minor she was like in a party she just kind of showed up a little bit it was almost like it was almost like a Stan Lee cameo in an Avengers film if you really want to think about it that way but I just yeah I mean I, I don't think it took away from the film in any way whatsoever I think it was this actually was, uh, quite interesting this was Lady in the Desert. This was a, a better a better cameo if there ever was one by the writer director. Uh, Can I make a weird sidebar. argument? Go okay. I was gonna do. Let me do a brief other okay. sidebar real quick. I'm on her IMDb, IMDb page right now. She is rumored her next feature length production is rumored to be a remake of the 1993 classic Cliffhanger. That, uh, so wow. Uh, yeah, that's uh I don't think she's going to permeate the film as much in that one. She's the one who like falls off the thing when Stallone's looking down like holding her hand, you know. Yeah. That's what's interesting and this is what will make my argument interesting. She's remaking films now. What the fuck? Uh but I'd like to argue that if she continues down this weird path, she might even be able to do a remake and still remain an auteur which is rare today. Auteurs are rare today. I I, I honestly can't think of any, uh, maybe uh, the, the director of the room, <laughs> but like, honestly, I don't think auteurs are really common today. Like this, this weird person who's the actor and, and the director and the writer and, and putting all of their actual self into it. That's very rare today. And I feel like she did that with this film to a point where I'm like, she's a fucking auteur. But if she's doing cliffhanger, that's going to be really the question, right? What she does with that film is going to see if 
I think that's where we'll see if she's an auteur. How great would it be though if I rat if a rash and then we're in cliffhanger, like it's the sequel, basically. You know, like I that's what I want to see. You know, we have a deadly analysis segment where we pitch ideas. That's what I want to see. I want to see the girl in cliffhanger. That's what I want to see. I'm gonna make this work. That's gonna be my next pitch. You think I'm joking? I'm gonna make this work. Watch. We, we do have a question coming up. What uh what horror film? Wait, it's it's something along the what horror film from one what horror film character from one horror film would you put into another horror film in order to improve it? And perhaps the girl in this film in Cliffhanger would be an interesting idea. I don't know. This I'm a little concerned about any sort of remake, but I think you're right, Shayra. The auteur theory is going to be put to the test when we see uh this this director do cliffhanger. Now here's here's what it's gonna be. It's gonna be a lot like the the um the homage that we see in the second Ace Ventura film where he's actually there and he has that raccoon, except it's gonna be Masuka the cat. Like that's gonna be that's gonna be the connection there, right? It's gonna be Cliffhanger, but kind of like Jim Carrey, who is actually in the Bad Batch, and he's going to be trying to rescuing Masuka the cat. Like that's the film right there. I, Boom, done. Oh my god, you and you gave me a good idea. All right, here's my I'm sorry. I know we're getting way off track. This is uh, like this is this is my bread and butter here. All right. So the girl, the 30-second version is the girl and a rash go. They leave Bad City. They get into mountain climbing. It's their thing. It's their gig. It's how they find closeness. They listen to some Lyle Ritchie while they're up there, you know, hanging out and they just they go for it. Wait, wait, uh, wait. Before you continue, can they sing hello? And then the echo goes, hello. hello. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now what they do, that's, oh my God, this is getting, this works on so many levels. All right. So they go there, but they get lost. They get lost. And the next thing they know, they start to notice snow. And they're like, wait, I thought we in the United States, where, how, how did we get here? You know where they end up? They end up in Pontypool and that cat becomes Honey the Cat. Honey the Cat from Pontypool. That's how, that's how we're going to make it work. And they pass by Tom Cruise hanging off one of the ledges, just posing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, people. Now this is this is what we do here on this podcast. We are quite insane. Uh, I'm gonna make that work. I, I I'm gonna tie these together. All right, I'm sorry, I'm nerding out a little too much. If now. we ever actually decide to make a deadly analysis film, we're gonna have this like round top table. It's gonna have to be round because this is just how we do things. You know, we're very we're very much authorian, right? So, but we'll have like, maybe we'll have this like, you know, dry whiteboard that's round around us and everybody's writing on the, on the boards and we're just throwing out all these crazy ideas. It's just this crazy world. And then that's what we end up coming up with. Yeah. On the whiteboard, comes. on the whiteboard, it's going to say, nobody's seen honey, the cat. And then we're going to have an arrow <laughs> except the girl. Except the yeah. girl. And a rash. Oh. oh God. All right, my head's spinning. All right, we got to segue out of this. I'm just, I could talk about this for hours. Uh, do you do you guys want to score for, this movie? Yeah, we're ready for final. Who, who, whose film selection was this? I completely this forgot. Ben. Okay. This is on um, uh, Ben's list. So let me give my, uh, Ben, if you want to close up with yours, I'll, I'll start with mine. I mean, I was going to come into this giving this like a three out of five only because it, um, it was a little slow for me. Like the film really settled down one thing. I like when it settles down into one thing, it's it, it never settled down into a love story entirely, uh, a horror story entirely, feminism entirely. Like it never was at the end one full thing. But through the course of this conversation, I'm realizing that's largely the point that the ism, the, the, the labels assigned to this 
um, are the thing that she, the director, wants us to sort of move away from to see the complexity of being a particular sort of person in this world. And so what I initially saw is like something of a criticism, knowing how personal this movie is and how it's an extension of who she is, I'm a little more apt to forgive that than I usually am, take that Argento. Uh, so look, I mean, very little dialogue, um, didn't bother me as much as it usually does, so not a big thing. Uh, you know, moments of horror are fast and brief, the, the execution scenes, um, but overall, like, I felt like this movie is an homage to a particular set of cinema styles more so than it is about like a traditional narrative message in horror, something about like the futility of life or the or, or death. You know what I mean? Like it, it was about a person. It wasn't about some, you know, what I always say in this podcast is that horror films that I like are movies that stick to a particular concept and flesh it out in some novel way. And whatever that concept is, it's very basic and central to the human condition. The idea of who one is as a person. So for Shayra being replicated, removed, uh, abandoned as a person, uh, the removal of autonomy, uh, autonomy rather. Uh, for Ben, it seems to be this, this idea of the contemplation of death and a very specific contemplation. For me, it's it's somewhat similar. It's, it's uh, you know, so there's these concepts, but this movie's about a person more than it is a narrative, uh, style, like a, a central story. I mean, it has that, but I'm way more apt to forgive those things. Like it didn't, I, I don't even say forgive anymore. It just doesn't bother me when I watch this movie that it doesn't have those things. It doesn't hit me the same way as some of those other films. Um, so I was going to give this a three out of five. Honestly, I'll probably give it a four out of five. Um, you know, it, it didn't scare me and I need, if I'm going to go higher than a four, I gotta be a little scared. I gotta, I gotta have something last and linger that's unsettling. Um, this kind of made me feel warm <laughs> and like happy, and and that's not bad, but it's it it doesn't last in the same way a good scary thought does. So uh, I liked the homage to silent films, more specifically Nosferatu, uh, the western style man with no name. There's a racer head in this. A lot of the industrial sound, the sound design in this movie is utterly fantastic. Um, you know, the film noir aspects, uh, characters being lit by ambient lighting throughout the entire course of the movie, um, and the sort of nether realm atmosphere that all of those things combine give you. You know, there's a, a, almost a sense of banality to like daily life and the viciousness of living in reality and, and sort of the black and whiteness and this movie's a challenge to look at things in a more nuanced way. Um, and so I left with something different than when I went into. And I think this conversation really uh, lit up, really kind of, you guys served as the ambient light. The sort of, I, I feel like a rash just looking up at the light bulb after this conversation, um, sort of getting more out of it than I thought I did. So I give it a four. I want to give it more, but I just wasn't scared. And I feel like this is a podcast where fear is uh, heavily weighted. So I would have given it a higher one, four out of five. Uh, that's the highest I can give to this, but I feel like that's that's really good for me, all things considered. So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go for mine uh, review because I think Jim and Ben should end this because if you actually put Jim and Ben in just a show all by themselves, which has happened uh, here on this channel, 
it's a fantastic show. They could just we could just cut out me and Noah here and just have Jim and Ben. No, 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 no. Yeah, no. Why, yeah. Why We're are we here? I, I'm actually guys leaving. I'm actually away. leaving right no, now. We, like I, yeah, no, I. This is yeah. <laughs> We're not yeah. cutting you guys out. We love you too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're but staying. like, I, I honestly, I do really love the combo, <laughs> yeah. Jim well, and Ben. When we have two hours, you guys get to stay. When we have 15 minutes, Ben and I can do it. Uh, I, that, uh, makes, that makes sense. But, uh, when it's two hours, you guys are here. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Uh, but I'll, I'll go so we can have a, a Jim and Ben ending. So it's epic. Um, so this movie is absolutely beautiful to me. The it just Not just the visuals. The visuals are enough, honestly. Uh, the fact that it could be a silent film, the fact that you probably could watch it without any captions and still understand what's going on. Um, the the fact that the characters are so pronounced that not just from the black and white, but because of who they are, you probably don't need any language or any kind of conversation to understand what's happening. It's huge. That is really hard to accomplish. And honestly, that's what film is supposed to be, right? It's It's lighting... And it's reflections of society, but also it is uh, an idea that with just the visuals, you could tell a story. This film does that so perfectly. And so in that way, I understand why it's in the 1001 films you must see before you die. It's not just on our list. It's put in the lists. Uh, and, and there are some people that have put it in their like top 10 movies to watch in the last two decades so it's it's definitely up there on on important films to watch so if, if you're not just looking for a horror film this is a film to look at anyway just because it's got all these elements uh, it's got that pulp, pulp fiction stuff it's got the western stuff it's got different kinds of cultures all intermingling it has different types of people intermingling it's so fucking gorgeous um every aspect of it is just so fucking beautiful but the other thing about this film is you have this idea that we don't want to die. And that's what vampires are all about. That's what, that's why we have these kinds of stories. And I think even more horrific than this idea, like I don't want to die is the idea that you live forever and can't find love. And, uh, you know, I thought at one point in time, <laughs> that there was that this idea of love was bullshit that people had lied to me that love existed and i was like this is there's no there's no such thing i've grown up now you guys have lied to me this isn't a thing it wasn't until my late 20s and maybe even later for some other people where you're like oh sh oh shit <laughs> love okay um and i think that this film perfectly captures what that is whether you find love when you're young or old it's crazy when it happens uh but it can feel surreal it can feel fake it can feel fiction even when you're living through it yourself your brain is telling you this is something's off and you're like i should run away but i'm gonna sit right here and i'm gonna experience this and she captured this real human thing so fucking well i don't think i've ever seen anyone capture this horrific thing that happens to us. And and I understand what you mean, Noah, when you say that's not horrific, but falling in love is pretty horrific in my mind. Uh, just because I have fallen in love at, 
at an older age and it, it felt scary because I was like, I, I've given up on this shit and what the fuck is this shit? So it, for me, it was horror. If that sounds... No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Falling in love is scary. It's not okay. Because then you start to realize, oh, I'm I'm not going to be just me by myself. I'm I'm me plus. I'm milk plus. <laughs> like, what is this shit? What have I become? You've changed the entire combination of my chemistry. Ah, and then you have to figure out how you work together forever, and how you can make that last forever. You you got to dance with the balloon. <laughs> it's exactly it. It's fucking beautiful. It's fucked. It it messes with my head. It in a way I have the sappy like hopeless romantic side that I always try to hide from the world cuz fuck anybody knowing I'm a sap. I am a sap. I did like a a recent Netflix film was it a um, uh Always Be My Maybe. I recommend it. I I actually liked a rom-com. Holy shit. I have some sappy sides of myself, but goddamn, uh, it's also a horror film. You could literally take the rom-com from Netflix and put some different kind of music to it, and it's not okay. <laughs> it's... Well, you know, you know, just to really quickly add, you know why it's a horror film, I think, in a lot of ways is because, I, I to piggyback on what you're saying, is when you love someone, you're giving yourself like the deepest part of yourself to that person and that is a that's like walking on a ledge that's like a cliffhanger if you will uh it, it is you know that's that's what it is that's what it is and that's scary you're you're totally right uh, as a component to falling in love um it is uh it's it's a monumental thing and all monumental things have an aura of being scary at times you know um there's some of the more um long lasting and there's no net under me, no safeguard under me sh should I fall sort of moments in your life. So it makes sense that it would hit you that way. I totally get that. I get what you're saying. Yeah, we let down our walls and we let somebody into our really fucked up side and it's like, oh, this is who I am actually. And they're like, are you okay? I, I killed your dad. I sucked blood. I stole your cat. You still cool? We cool? We cool? Are we good? Oh, you started the engine. Okay. You started the engine. You're you're fine with that shit. Okay, we're good. Yeah, it's almost like the equivalent of uh, it's 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 almost the equivalent of like here's all my exes. Here's what I've done. Like let me be a clean slate to you. Like you know what I mean? Like that is kind of what that is. It's let me I'm going to tell you something and it's going to put our relationship in jeopardy. And are you going to leave or are we going to still drive off together into the into the sunset? You know what I mean? And so, that's yeah. the two tensions, right? You have the tension of the coming together, and then you have the tension of, are we leaving together? And those are two wildly horrific tensions. Are we draw are we both drawn to each other? Are we both leaving together? That's the two tensions of love. And holy fuck, is that horrifying to me personally because I've experienced that shit. I actually told my entire family and friends to go fuck themselves for love. And they all cut me off for a couple of years, actually, for following who I fell for. I had to cut off my cultural and social and spiritual life for love. That's what happened at the end of that film. And I know that horror. I know why there was a hesitation. I know why there was that lull in the car. But they took off anyway, and it's 
fucking beautiful and it's scary and I love it. So uh, is it scary like I jumped out of my seat? No, but it's real shit and it's fucked shit. And so uh, I, I just want to point this out, Ben. You're, you're doing pretty good on your film choices. Holy shit. This is a five out of a five for me. Fuck that movie is wow. amazing. Love this shit. Mwah. More women filmmakers, please. Whoa. More Ben, more Ben films. Five out of five. Oh yeah. shit. That's uh that's that's high. All right. Congratulations, Shara. That's uh all right. So I'm at three out of <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was gonna say where Jim comes in. I'm thinking a two. Solid two. <laughs> I mean this uh give it a one. Um no, I you know, I actually I I left the film at two. Uh, I turned off the film and I left it too. I'm like, this is too slow. I understand basically where it's going and what it's doing, but it's doing it very slowly. And uh, sort of it required a lot of patience. And, and so I, I left the film at two. I entered the podcast at three after sort of letting it marinate and sift around in my head. And now my official rating, this is the one where I'm I'm actually I'm up to 3.5 because I wow. think that wow. uh it, it's it's been a long journey here to 3.5, and I think this is where I'm gonna settle. Um and and a lot of it has to do with some of the things that we talked about in the beginning. You know, the the criticisms that I have of this film is there isn't a story for me to sort of latch myself onto. The story is really simple, the story is uh rather uh the story is 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 not it, there's not too much going on in the story but then as i start to think about it more i sort of go on the same journey that noah talked about where maybe that's the point and so am i faulting the film for uh things that i'm putting on it rather than uh, taking the film at its own merits. I also really like your interpretation, Shara, where you talk about how uh, this is the horror of coming together and then the horror of leaving together after you reveal yourself. And, you know, the, I, I, I almost wish that I had more dialogue-based character interaction so that I could see that being done not just through images but also through words because it's true that sometimes we just connect through uh, motion and through action and through looks. It is true that that is one way in which we communicate, but it is also true that we use our words. And for somebody who spends most of his days using his words and most of his professional life word-based, linguistically based, um, I, you know, it's, it's harder for me to personally connect to, uh, attempting to reach a love connection through simply motion and action and voice and touch or, or motion and action and and touching and not touching um and the choice to do those things uh do those actions it's a little bit different um at least as i sort of negotiate the planet in my own head but nonetheless i do and I, I see the artistry of this film i see a lot of what this film is doing and i like a lot of what this film is doing but the actual experience of watching it and the actual story construction of it is not necessarily my taste. Therefore, I'm recommending it, uh, but with, with sort of some reservations. Uh, ben, you wrote, 
uh, <laughs> revenge for Clockwork Orange in in our per private chat <laughs> when you uh, when I gave Clockwork Orange a five out of five last week, and you gave it a three point five out of five, and you think that maybe maybe my three point five was just I was I was aping you in order to uh, to get revenge upon you. Does that mean that you are going to give this film a five out of five as well? That's an awfully high bar to set. What's that? That is an awfully high bar to set because if I were to give this film a 5.5, for me, that would set it at the same bar that I set Seventh Seal. And I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if Amarpour is quite at the level of Bergman. They're just both yet. black and white. That is true. And that's the common bar. Any film that is in black and white automatically gets a 5.5. And that's my entire review. Thanks. And this was the WNAFT <laughs> podcast. Well, I don't I don't necessarily like I've given I've given a couple films fives over the course of no, I've given one film five over the course of this podcast. But I, you know, I've given like Bug and Requiem for a Dream and Get Out 4.5 out of fives. And I don't think, in, you know, I like I love those films in different ways. So uh, you can you can take that Bergman stigma off, and not necessarily say that any film that I give a five to is as good as The Master. Um, and by the way, yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, you, if you, you want to say that's you your favorite movie, you go give, it a, give it a five plus if you want to make that your favorite movie. Uh, five is fun. It's, these are ratings. Give it a six. <laughs> this one goes to 11. <laughs> You can't do that. It screws up my spreadsheet. All right, I, we're interrupting your fi your final thoughts, Ben. Go ahead. No, that's okay. You're giving me a, a sufficient level of tension. I, I feel much like a balloon, if you uh, if you will, in this particular situation now about to pop. Um, so I think we've talked a lot about the the artistic merits of this film already. Um, somewhat contrary to a lot of our reviews, that seems to have been a lot of the focus, not just about the directorial skill that went into pouring her soul into what this work of art was, but also the callbacks to many different genres in a way that made sense and didn't seem to clash. We have Westerns, we have love stories, we have horror, we have uh, film noir. Um, and obviously, as Shara said, we have like clashing cultures uh, sort of like melded together in a way that makes perfect sense and that that sort of like sing together in, in a really nice harmony. Um, as we've seen in different podcasts that we've had already, like I'm not necessarily one to hang my hat on uh, plot. And while this did have a very simplistic plot, like usually the the love story narrative isn't something that really super impresses me, I guess. Like I'm not a giant fan of rom-coms. Um, but I think that's okay in this particular case because everything else was so substantial that it didn't really need it. Um, and I don't know if it's necessarily like Gaspar Noe in that way. Like, I mean, if we want to talk about climax, how that is primarily a technical film that is interesting because of the way that it is shot rather than what's being shot necessarily. I think it may be one way to explain that, but I want to move beyond that because we've already talked about that enough. Like what I really do want to discuss a little bit more is whether or not we can call this a horror film. And I think that we can. And I know it gave me a really good transition into this because uh, a lot of the films that I pick are meditations on death. And as Shara mentioned, the vampire is the perfect monster to, to think about what it means to be an embodiment of death. Um, 
in the character of the girl, we have many conflicting yet harmonious elements. You know, we've talked about viciousness versus vulnerability, but I also think we see both life and death. And not just because we're talking about a female vampire with the power to both take life away, but also give it through birth, uh, presumably. Um, I think that's necessarily kind of like inherent to the, the theme of the film being changed where you see the dying of the old and the birth of the new. And so if we do want to think about this film being a horror film, we can put it up there with those films kind of like Seventh Seal that are ultimately meditations on what I think the ultimate theme of horror is, which is the contemplation of death, whether that be through personal death or the death of a particular type of culture or a set of boundaries that we set on ourselves as a society. And I think probably this film is an example of the latter, where the fear primarily is probably that fear that we become stuck in that which is traditional and which is old, which prevents us from having sort of like these new blossoming experiences and loves and relationships and becoming one with ourselves with ultimate self-awareness, kind of like we see in the character of the rock ability. Um, so in that particular our avenue of thought, I do think this, not just because we're talking about a vampire who literally brings death to certain types of people, but because it is along those same lines of that ultimate, ultimate meditation of what we should think about when we're thinking about horror. Um, because of that, for me, I, I, I do have to obviously rate this quite high. I don't necessarily know that I can give it the same score that I gave Bergman, though, because whenever I watched it, I didn't have that same that same internal experience. I mean, like, you know, I mean, like that might be an impossible bar to set that I may never see another film that does that to me. But this film is good because it speaks to all the same types of things, I think almost, albeit in a different way, um, something that is more modern or perhaps postmodern because it draws on film developments that have happened since Bergman's time and also has like sort of like these cultural clashes that didn't necessarily exist in the the incandescent light of the streets at the time that Bergman was creating films. But it's along those same lines. And so because of that, I think it is absolutely fantastic. And while I cannot, I cannot give it a 5.5 only because it did not make me cry primarily. I'm still going to have to give it a 4.5, which puts it right up there for me among the some of the some of the highest rated films that we've done on this show. I absolutely recommend this. This is a must watch. Well, that's a pretty highly rated movie for all of us. Did I give it the I gave it the lowest, I think. No, you were. No. I didn't. You were at oh. four and I'm at three point five. Oh, that's not surprising. I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for those of you at home who are keeping score, Jim's average rating is 3.28 and Noah's is 3.84. So <laughs> I don't know what that means. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it means you like math a lot. Uh, yes. Well, I mean, I, it actually means I can do Excel. No, it means Jim has standards. That's what it means. <laughs> That's what it means. Yeah, uh, I'm not the one who gave fucking Climax a five. Oh, <laughs> love Climax. Oh, wait, we were talking about the movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had a. I misunderstood. I'm yeah, going to have to change right. my score. I meant something very different. Oh, okay. I can't talk about Yeah, either way, for me, that still doesn't go to five out of five for me. Like, Bergman's <laughs> still super steep. Better than sex. Better than sex. Bergman is still better than an actual Climax. <laughs> oh, my God. 
I don't, I, there's, I, you, Dude, you again, do realize we're going to start sending you death porn. Like, it's just going to yeah. be death on the beach walking. <laughs> you yeah. do like the black and white starkness, you know, the chessboard pieces oh moving together. Anything that's black and white, that's his porn. I mean, if, if y'all want to start calling me Thanos, I am perfectly fine with that. Because <laughs> I am, in fact, in some ways, courting death, if you, oh. if you will. Oh yeah, God. no snapping, though, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, as always, week after week, they have given me no possible way to segue appropriately out of this <laughs> conversation. Uh, next week, uh, we have a very special evening uh, lined up. Uh, it's essentially going to be like a who's your daddy segment. It's going to be interesting. Uh, Shayra, you want to give your 30 second version of what uh, we're doing next week? Yeah, I'm going to try something and you guys are going to see if you like it. But uh, I, I'm going to start talking about different characters in horror films. And uh, I, I'm putting together what I can only establish is, is the only video on the internet that will be talking about this. But the different kinds of horror daddies mm, like that. that exist. So, uh, yeah, for Father's Day, I'm going to give it daddy issues uh, <laughs> kind of... Uh, editing of multiple clips of awesome movies you guys need to watch and if anything you can watch it just to see what stuff to watch with your daddy <laughs> for father's day and feel very awkward and and ask him questions about how he raised you so you know check it out at least for some ideas of movies to watch with daddy yeah on mother's day we actually all held hands and i cried as we watched hereditary together it was fantastic so that's what we do here on this podcast we work through these things what a better time to do that than father's day actually fathers and horror is not something that's explored a lot so this would be kind of cool and then week after that we're doing ravenous which is 1999 ravenous not 2018 ravenous it's cannibal ravenous not zombie ravenous how about that so uh join us i will be definitely eating a rare steak that evening, um, Jim will be eating hair, pulling the hair out of his throat, like, like, like this, right here. It's going to be great. It's going to, like that, and it's going to be amazing. Just join us every Sunday night, folks. That's the point. Uh, if you liked tonight's episode, um, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, check out our website, deadlyanalysis.com. We've got a lot of interesting stuff there, little bios about all of us, although you probably learned more than you would like to tonight about each of us. Hey, but you know what? That was the theme of tonight. The director threw herself out there into this movie, and tonight you got to learn a little bit about each of us, um, especially that a lot of cows walk home at night where Jim lives. A lot of cows. Uh, check us out next week, and we'll see you guys like we do every Sunday night at 6 p.m. Uh, Pacific Standard Time. Thanks for watching. Have a good night.